This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we look at two South African success stories as the world fights the biggest global health crisis in living memory. Business journalist Linda van Tilburg looks at an entrepreneurial Cape company that has developed a rapid COVID-19 test from a cousin of the tobacco plant. This company is one of five attracting investment from the University Technology Fund, a South African fund aimed at commercializing technologies and innovations developed in the country. We speak to Cape Biofarms founder Belinda Shaw. Also coming up on this program, we hear from Ruth Lewin, Discovery's Head of Corporate Sustainability. Ruth has been appointed to head the International Association of Volunteer Effort based in the US. We speak to her about this prestigious role and what it means for volunteer work in South Africa and Africa. Also coming up, we hear about the COVID Resilience Ranking, which is an index that scores economies on how well they have withstood COVID-19. South Africa is 35 on that list. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First, the COVID-19 news making headlines. The UK became the first Western country this week to approve a COVID-19 vaccine, with its regulator clearing Pfizer and BioNTech's shot ahead of decisions in the US and the European Union. Bloomberg reports that the emergency authorization clears the way for the deployment of a vaccine that Pfizer and its German partner have said is 95% effective in preventing illness. The shot will be available in Britain from next week, according to a government statement. British Health Secretary Matt Hancock has said, We can see the way out and we can see that by the spring we are going to be through this. Moderna Inc. shares fell after Merck & Co. said it sold its stake in the biotechnology company that is in the midst of developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Merck sold its direct equity investment in Moderna during the first half of the fourth quarter, according to a statement from the U.S. drug maker. Zimbabweans travelling home for the holidays need a negative COVID-19 certificate in both directions. That's the report from GroundUp. It says the certificate costs at least 850 rand in South Africa and is about 920 rand in Zimbabwe. Home Affairs Minister Aaron Motswaledi says the rule will be strictly enforced. For many Zimbabweans, the cost of the COVID-19 tests necessary to cross the border will make the annual return home unaffordable, says GroundUp. The British media has moved quickly to debunk false claims about vaccinations. The fear that a vaccine will somehow change your DNA is one aired regularly on social media, says the BBC. The British Broadcasting Corporation asked three independent scientists about this. They said that the coronavirus will not alter human DNA. Some of the newly created vaccines, including the one now approved in the UK developed by Pfizer-BioNTech, use a fragment of the virus's genetic material, also called messenger RNA. The BBC quotes Professor Geoffrey Almond of Oxford University saying, Injecting RNA into a person doesn't do anything to the DNA of the human cell. It works by giving the body instructions to produce a protein which is present on the surface of the coronavirus. The immune system then learns to recognize and produce antibodies against the protein. British supermarket giant Tesco has announced that it is repaying the £585 million worth of business rates relief that it received as support during the coronavirus pandemic. 
The supermarket giant said the help to retailers had been a game changer, but its move comes after Tesco was criticised for paying dividends to shareholders. Business rates relief was extended to all retailers in Britain as part of a package of measures announced in March. Tesco says that at that time there was a real and immediate risk to the ability of supermarkets to feed the nation. It is quoted as saying, We are immensely grateful for the financial and policy support provided to us by the governments of the UK. In October, Tesco defended paying a £350 million dividend to shareholders. Finance chief Alan Stewart told reporters it was the right policy. TUI, the world's biggest tour operator, will receive €1.8 billion in bailout funds after securing a third tranche of aid from the German government, together with cash from private investors. TUI appealed for additional aid after a new wave of virus lockdowns in Europe wiped out a hoped-for surge in late summer travel while stunting bookings for winter getaways and ski breaks. The bailout, which extends rescue funds to €4.8 billion, was delayed by a debate over what conditions the state should attach, especially in relation to 8,000 planned job cuts. TUI shares traded higher on that news in London. TUI was already Germany's second biggest coronavirus bailout recipient, topped only by Deutsche Lufthansa. Some companies have already been paying back their bailouts, including Adidas and Kion. Bloomberg reports that while the imminent start of COVID-19 vaccine distribution is positive for TUI, people are booking far later for vacations in response to ever-changing travel curbs and delaying revenue flows. It has also rebooked many customers from the summer, just gone, from whom it won't be getting extra cash. Airline Ryanair Holdings is near an agreement to order more Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. This will give the US plane maker a shot in the arm, says Bloomberg. The MAX was grounded worldwide in March 2019 after two crashes killed a total of 346 people. It was cleared to fly again by the Federal Aviation Administration last month and European regulators expect to allow the plane to fly in the region by mid-January. Vaccine developers were whiplashed in U.S. trading on Wednesday after the U.K. became the first Western country to clear a preventative shot for COVID-19, sending its makers Pfizer and BioNTech SE higher. Some on Wall Street have been warning of more volatility for vaccine stocks as gains in several biotechnology names stretch beyond analyst models and appear to be driven less by fundamentals and more by enthusiastic day traders. Bloomberg reports that small-cap vaccine contenders like Arcturus, Inovio have fallen by as much as 6%. Interpol has issued a global warning to law enforcement to prepare for organized crime to target COVID-19 vaccines. The organization says there are already examples of criminals advertising, selling and administering fake vaccines and says ensuring the safety of the supply chain and identifying illicit websites offering fake products will be essential. The Italian government is set to tighten restrictions during the Christmas and New Year holiday season. The World Health Organization has updated its guidance on masks. It says people should wear masks indoors and outdoors where physical distancing of at least one meter cannot be maintained, especially in areas with community or cluster transmission. At home, people should wear a mask when receiving visitors in case of crowding or poor ventilation, it says. The World Health Organization has recommended against wearing a mask during vigorous workouts, as well as against the use of valved masks. Face shields provide a level of eye protection only and are inferior to masks with respect to droplet transmission and prevention, it says. The Philippines, which has the second worst outbreak in Southeast Asia, expects to start administering coronavirus vaccines as early as the first quarter of next year. It is pinning its hopes on China and Russia as its own procurement policies hamper efforts for early access, says Bloomberg. The African country with the worst confirmed coronavirus outbreak is yet to provide clarity on how it plans to order vaccines, even as the global race to secure inoculations accelerates.
This is according to Bloomberg. South Africa is hosting three trials, including for Johnson and Johnson and a partnership between AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. Yet it has not announced a firm strategy to immunize a population that's bracing for a potential resurge of the pandemic. Almost 22,000 people have died of COVID-19 in South Africa. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Business journalist Linda Van Tilburg speaks to the chief executive officer and founder of Cape Biofarms. Belinda Shaw tells us about a rapid COVID-19 test kit, which is a first not only for South Africa, but for Africa. This is Linda van Tilburg for Biz News. Many universities around the world where technology and innovation are incubated are very successful at commercializing these innovations. The recent success of Oxford University and the COVID-19 vaccine space is very well known. There are, however, only isolated cases of this in South Africa. In order to address this void, a new university technology fund was established earlier this year. The UTF has managed to raise 230 million rand so far and has invested in five South African companies. One of them is Cape Biofarms, a spin-out from the University of Cape Town, a new biotech venture using tobacco plants to produce proteins for biomedical research. And the exciting bit of this company is, as its chief executive officer and founder, Belinda Shaw, told BizNews, is that their proteins are now used in a rapid COVID-19 test kit, which is a first not only for South Africa, but for Africa. Cape Biofarms is incredibly exciting. you know. So it, it really started back in 2014 at a TEDx talk in Cape Town when Professor Ed Rubisky was on stage talking about producing vaccines and tobacco. Um, I thought this was absolutely fantastic. But obviously producing vaccines requires a very high compliance facility. These can cost 100 to $400 million, can take years to build. But with the technology that Professor Rubisky was talking about, we turn hundreds of plants, which are the distant cousins of tobacco, into mini bioreactors. Uh, and this is a tobacco cousin that you cannot smoke. It's used by researchers in in this particular field and a couple of other plant-based expression systems around the world. So it's an ideal plant. It's got very low immunity. So what we do essentially is we decide what protein we want to manufacture. And in the early days, we've gone for the low-hanging fruit, which are research reagents, and they're used by life scientists around the world. We infiltrate the leaves with our protein of interest, and four or five days later, we purify and we have our protein. So, you know, it's a disruptive system for Africa. It's affordable. We could build this facility at a tenth of the price of traditional systems. We can scale up quickly by just adding more plants. And the plant is very clever, actually, in producing quite complex proteins. So we're not reduced down to, to sort of simple proteins. We can do what's called fusion proteins, which are used a lot in research. And the most important thing for me is it starts developing capability because a lot of these research reagents are imported. So, you know, our researchers locally are paying dollar prices. They often have to wait weeks, if not months, for proteins, which means they're always sort of at the back end of the queue when it comes to getting their research out, to writing papers, to finishing off, or getting ahead, you know, of the global research market. And it's just so exciting that we began to commercialize this technology, and now we've created proteins for SARS-CoV-2. 
what is the commercial application? And, and it seems very relevant at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. We were, you know, two years into production. We had about 75 different variants of our research reagents. And we had just begun to enter the market and get a bit of traction when COVID struck. And we knew in sort of February this was going to be a nasty one. And one of the key things that we'd always believed in starting this uh, endeavor was that pandemics, it's never a case of if, it's a case of when. And we wanted to be ready. I mean, it's just crazy that, in fact, we managed to get the sequence for the antigen of SARS-CoV-2 quite quickly. It was made available in the public domain. And so we created the gene sequence that could, in fact, be infiltrated into our plants. And we now have, over the last sort of six to eight months, refined that. We have uh, two antigens to SARS-CoV-2, which is the spike protein, you know, the little spiky bits on the virus. It's just that spike part that will attach itself to your body. That's how it gets into your system. And a part of that is called the RBD. So we have these two proteins which are now used on test kits for testing rapid diagnostic test kits that can test whether you have been infected. Are those the ones being used at the moment or what technology is in them? Our protein has gone on to a locally manufactured rapid diagnostic test kit, a serology test kit. It is the only one in South Africa that has been approved, a local one. The others that have been approved by SARPA are all imported, most of them from China. Uh, so this is a local production. And it will tell you within 15 minutes if you have had COVID-19, which I think for most people is an enormous relief. You know, every time you cough or sneeze, you wonder if you've got COVID. Well, it you know takes sort of eight to 10 days before you've developed enough antibodies in your system and this is what this test kit will pick up. And then the next phase is we've got antibodies in development, which is really exciting because that will now tell you if you have the virus. So it's really, really exciting for us to be able to produce these proteins that are, are now being put on these test kits. And now we've got manufacturers in India that have tested kits there too with our proteins and are have proven to work exceptionally well. So, you know, we're up against the best, and I think we, we're holding our own. So it's super exciting that the plant-based system, and I mean what I love about the plant-based system, is it's, it's a highly ethical system. There's no animals involved whatsoever. I'm just trying to get to where we are now. So you said it's been approved. Are they actually being sold in South Africa now or not yet? Yes. So the supplier has got SARPA approval, and they are being sold in South Africa. The question, I mean, what I would love everybody to ask is, is this a local kit or is it a Chinese kit? Because quite frankly, you know, there should be support for local product. How many of these local kits that have your technology in it is out there? It's run through the manufacturers, the actual kit manufacturers. Uh, Life Assay is the kit manufacturer. So, you know, we're not involved in selling test kits. We only provide the protein. So it's how they've distributed in the market. Uh, and I know that they are looking at sub-Saharan Africa to get their kits out. There must be interest from overseas to buy this, to have a product actually from Africa. Yeah, I mean, very much so. There, there, there are a number of kits out there, and I think specifically with antibodies, it has taken a while for the antibodies to come through. So, so there are a number of international manufacturers. But, um, you know, my argument is at least we've ensured security of supply locally as opposed to being at the end of the queue or having to import at massive dollar-denominated prices. And 
You know, what, what's so amazing is the, the kind of the funding, I guess, that got us going in the early days. We got DTI and the SRIP program gave us initially grant funding. UCT became a, a matching investor in the early days, and that really got us out of the starting block uh, and proving commercial viability out of these proteins. And then with COVID lockdown, we had established that we could prove we could produce the antigens. And at the same time, you know, the SME fund, UTF, had already done a, a quite lengthy due diligence on us. And so their funding came at just the perfect right time. It got us over that next hurdle to be able to get our COVID-19 antigens perfected through R&D, tried, tested, validated, and into the market. So, I mean, every step of those funding milestones were absolutely critical in ensuring we could survive and get into the market as we have done now. Are you looking for more funding now? What are your funding requirements? So that's now the truly exciting part is because based on the validation of our antigens, we managed to secure additional international funding, substantial funding. I'll be able to spill the beans on the 18th, hopefully. So that's now helped us scale up rapidly. So we literally have gone from eight people to 30 people, many of whom come from research institutions like UCT, particularly from Brew, which is fantastic because it's creating job opportunities and fields in which they've been studying in which they bring that skill into the business. So, yeah, we are now geared up to produce massive quantities of our proteins for international distribution. So every step of the way, those funding milestones has been enormously beneficial for us. Can we look at the figures? So what was your initial seed funding and what are you looking at now? The initial seed funding was about 11 million. That was DTI's fund. And then there was the matching funding from UCT and UTF put in, it was around five. The next round of funding is quite substantial. And as much as I would love to brag and shout from the hilltops about it, I have to wait until the 18th for official clearance. But but that's a substantial uh, additional fund uh, and also a grant fund, I might add, which has allowed us to scale up quite rapidly. And what I love about the next phase is this commitment to to Africa. You know, when we were pitching for this fund, we were very kind of uh, obstinate about having security and retaining security in Africa so that our protein wasn't distributed internationally only. So we said 40% of our protein must remain for sub-Saharan Africa or low-middle-income countries. And that's in the contract. And it was accepted as absolutely fine, no problem, which is is great, you know. And and in all the discussions we had, there was so much support to upskill, you know, facilities in Africa and to make sure that those facilities benefited Africa. So you say the test kit is out there. So when can we expect the antibody kit? Well, that is in R&D. I reckon by mid-December, we're hoping that that will be through. But what happens next is it needs to be validated, you know, by SAPRA. So our job will be done and the formulation on the kit will be done, but it then has to go through various clinical trials and SAPRA validation. So one hopes by January we will have our own locally made antibody test kit. What's your message to people? Ask for the local kit. Well, yes, you know, I go back to when we were first uh, inspired 
to commercialize this technology was that Brew licensed the technology to an international manufacturer, a substantial big license, not the one particularly we're busy with, but something very similar. And that was quite upsetting. Obviously, they had to. They've got fantastic technology. They've been working on it for 15, 20 years. And if an international investor or manufacturer says, I want to license this, then, then they have to do it. But the point is we lost it. And I think that is quite sad is to lose the amazing IP being generated locally because of a lack of commercial initiatives. And that's where, you know, the SME fund is so incredible. It starts giving not only universities, but those people who are keen on commercializing some of the, the technology coming out of universities. And it might be, you know, the graduates or the academics coupling with perhaps a business orientated person, because you do need to have the two together. They're two completely separate disciplines. And, um, you know, that way I think is enormous opportunities that come from. So, so for me, my message is the Chinese test kits that have landed here, they were developed in China in the early days. They've landed in bulk. They've driven the price down. I'll put my head on the block that they certainly don't work as well as ours. And, and I just really think that local should be given priority, particularly in an instance like this, because what you do by feeding the local community is that you're upskilling. You're allowing those companies to employ locals, to skill locals, to grow their businesses locally. You know, so I think for people out there, you know, COVID is, we all say the new normal. I think that's quite cliched. It is a pandemic. It is a new virus. We're going to learn how to live with it. But the tools are not just for disease management. The tools are for personal disease management, not government disease management. So for us to be able to say, did I have COVID? With, you know, testing whether you had it. Have I got COVID if you've got a cough and a sneeze and a headache or lack of, you know, lose your taste or smell? And this provides enormous kind of peace of mind for individuals, but it also helps open economies, which helps people keep jobs. You know, our economy is being gutted. So it is kind of a willian in a way where you have to have your pass, your COVID negative pass to be able to carry on. But I think at the end of the day, what that's doing is protecting those that are the most vulnerable. If you are positive, stay at home. Make sure you, you protect others, if, if, if not yourself. And you mentioned the price. You said they're cheap. How do they price-wise compare with a Chinese product? It's almost impossible to compare with a Chinese product. You know, they bring it down to, I think it lands for about $2. The problem is, is what the middleman, you know, so selling for 150 rand is a massive markup for individuals who are not even involved in the business. They're just the middlemen. Whereas you've got a kit manufacturer locally who's plowed millions into their business, who is trying to bring the price down as much as possible. And it might still be sold slightly more expensive. But, uh, you know, the value chain goes to the place where it's needed the most. Next, we speak to Ruth Lewin, who has received international recognition for her social impact work. Ruth has been instrumental in Discovery's corporate social responsibility initiatives and the formation of the Discovery Foundation. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. With me is Discovery's Head of Corporate Sustainability, Ruth Lewin, who has recently been appointed to the prestigious position of World President of the Global Volunteerism Body for the U.S.-based International Association of Volunteer Effort. Ruth, congratulations. What does this International Association of Volunteer Effort do and how did your appointment come about? 
Thanks, Jackie. It's known as Ayave. That's, that's the acronym. It's been in existence for about 50 years now, actually. And its main purpose is to promote, to strengthen, and to celebrate the development of volunteering worldwide. And so, you know, it has four key kind of functions. That of convening volunteer leaders, of advocacy, of knowledge development and network development. And my association with Ayave started about five years ago when Discovery joined their corporate volunteering program. And so, yes, that's it's been very exciting, particularly as I'm the first African world president and the first actually from the global south since 1988. So there's a, there's been a fair amount of excitement about um, my representing the global south and, of course, the African continent. This is a remarkable achievement. What does it mean for Discovery? I mean, I think that what it does, it gives us the opportunity to really showcase the amazing volunteering, corporate volunteering that our employees have been engaged in for many, many years. I joined Discovery in 2004. And it was then that we, in a more structured way, uh, launched an employee volunteer program within Discovery, where we realized that the success of the business has largely been attributed to the kinds of people we have. And, you know, our policy or our, our thinking really was how do we transfer the kind of skills that sit within a business that's made the business so successful into broader society? And I think, Jackie, it really talks to our philosophy as a business that we don't see ourselves as purely, you know, providing products and services to our members, but that we actually are a business fully entrenched in broader society. And therefore, we need to be taking very seriously the kinds of socioeconomic challenges that exist and how we position ourselves to contribute towards the eradication of those challenges. How do you see this volunteerism changing? So, you know, I think that what COVID has really shown us, Jackie, is that we actually, as a global world, we are really so connected. And so there are amazing opportunities for us to collaborate much more, not only across sectors, not only within our country, which is so critical, but actually globally. And so I see this relationship with Ayave certainly giving us that opportunity. Already we have a platform as a global business where we are connected to our other businesses in other parts of the world, in so many countries. And I think Ayave gives us this opportunity and my role certainly gives us the opportunity to start bringing everyone together and to really build a movement of volunteers in a very, very strategic way where we are truly addressing the kind of you know, the agenda certainly are that the United Nations has set in terms of the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. And so I think that is really the opportunity that we have. And it's the opportunity that we have to grasp now while everyone is thinking about what is our role, both as individuals and as collectives within our society broadly. Were there specific projects that caught the attention of the Ayave panelists when you were nominated for this position of world president? So I guess the discovery approach to volunteerism has been quite interesting. 
you know, we're not in any way discounting the importance of painting wards and painting schools, etc. Those are really important. But we believe if we are going to invest in social programs, we must do it towards, uh, firstly, alongside communities and really hear from communities what their needs are and not go in as a corporate thinking that we have all the resources and impose our solutions. I think that's the first issue. I think secondly, it's about how do we fundamentally and quite systemically address the issues. So one of the examples which we are really excited about alongside a whole host of other initiatives was a project that we launched with the city of Johannesburg about five years ago, to and in particular in one community, looking at Orange Farm as a community, which is an extremely depressed community, 40 kilometers from the city of Johannesburg. And we did a little baseline study to understand what were the key issues there before just embarking upon uh, providing solutions. And we found that there were a couple of issues which were kind of key to being resolved for that community. The one was that, was that there was a high level of youth unemployment. The second issue was, you know, the issue of, of health and, and the kind of diseases of lifestyle which were so prominent, I think, in many poor communities, in many communities, but particularly Orange Farm. And the third was, was related to enterprises and how one can kind of look can build small enterprises within those communities, but building on the, on the youth unemployment problem that exists. And so we, we launched this program with a skills development center. And, you know, we took on board, we didn't go in as implementors, but we took on board, you know, whichever organizations were in existence and what facilities were there. And we basically facilitated the training of, of, of young people, but with the aim of giving them jobs at the end of the day or assisting them, facilitating access to jobs. And we were fairly, fairly successful through our partnership with the city of Johannesburg, where um, many of these young people were either set up into small businesses where they could, you know, run a plumbing business or an electrical business or were actually employed in the respective enterprises of the city. And then once they were put into, into, once they had set up a little business of their own, we then utilized our enterprise development program to look at how that could invest in incubators in, in Orange Farm. And so the program has grown where, you know, what is what typically happens in a corporate is that you take on one NGO and you support it, or you take on one issue and you support it. Here we took on multiple issues with multiple partnerships, which included EBSA, the city of Johannesburg, the Netherlands embassy, and all the NGOs working in a particular field in Orange Farm. And so it was a really nice example of how you could address a couple of issues, all affecting the same people with good coordination and good collaboration. And I think that how many really interested Ayave as, a, you know, how corporates could potentially bring their own resources into something and systemically try and change uh, what exists there. The Ayave Executive Director, Nicole Cirillo, described you as a leader for the complexities and opportunities we face today. Was that a project that required multiple committees to decide how to go ahead or how did you unravel those complexities? 
I think when you when you have partners, you always have to take into account their constraints. And I suppose you know, with it comes the the support that they could give. But it, it's it's always difficult when one's working with with government because you've got to go through a whole host of processes. You know, we work very different in the corporate world, where you know you've got a budget and you are able to to move fairly quickly. So we learned, you know, that that if we wanting to be successful and in our new approach, we've got to take all our partners along with us. I think similarly, if you're wanting to work in communities like these, we, we're not going to be there in that finitum. And so it was very important for us to set up the right structures to ensure that the community gets ownership or the NGOs, the civil society with whom we are working, get ownership of these programs so that after five years, we can move on, having learnt a lot from that process into another community which has similar kind of challenges and roll out a program. So yes, it was, it was, we we learned a lot. We made many mistakes. And I don't think by any means we can say that we've been absolutely successful in being able to get community ownership of it in the way that we would have liked to have seen it. But these are very complex issues we're dealing with. And I think COVID has added a whole new dynamic to how one works in these communities. I mean, all our work is now virtual, you know, where we've actually had people on the ground. We can't do that any longer. Well, certainly for now. Very interesting figure in your financial reports saying that 30% of Discovery staff are engaged in volunteer activities. That's a huge number of staff members. What's your advice to other corporates who want to encourage their own staff to get engaged in the greater good? So this is this is a very exciting number for us because, um, in fact, our uh, the global statistic is 18% of employees are generally engaged. So we are by far exceeding it. We don't believe that it's the number where we want to be at. We want to be closer to the 70% mark. But I think the way one does this, when you have an employee value proposition, which looks at the entire experience of an employee within a, an organization, of which employee volunteerism is one essential part, then I think you are, you are addressing the issue of engagement in, in a quite holistic way. And so, you know, around incentivizing employees for being engaged, allowing employees to go out, giving them time off by the employer to, to actually do this kind of work. And for them to understand that actually it's a two-way, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. It isn't as if we are going into communities as saviors. They are also learning. And very often, actually, these employees come from the very areas in which we are working. So, you know, it's also about showing that the the business is cognizant of where you come from, what your challenges are, and how we are prepared to contribute towards eliminating some of those challenges. So I think if there's a, a lot of loyalty comes from it, there, you know, there's feedback into the business about what the needs are out there. So it, it also informs ultimately on product design and so on. So there are a lot of benefits that can be derived from this kind of activity. I think we've also seen 
that um, you know, largely in discovery, there are millennials employed, and millennials are really wanting to get involved in kind of social issues. It's something that that has come up certainly in the surveys that we've run within the business. So it's also about meeting the needs of our employees. It's not just about meeting either a community's needs or a company's needs. It's also about what employees are telling us they would like to be engaged in. Is this why you've got such a diverse range of projects? I see here that you have a project aimed at helping young girls. You've got PPE. Perhaps you could just tell us a bit more about the the range of projects your staff are involved in and, and how they got to those choices. I mean, presumably you don't accept all ideas. How do you filter them? It's a very difficult one because we are faced very often with not wanting to kill the spirit of volunteerism, but we also understand that there, we, you know, we want to make impact. So we need to guide as far as we can. So largely our focus would be on health related projects, much like our corporate social investment programs through the Discovery Fund and the Discovery Foundation are directed towards the public health system and the strengthening in particular of the public health system. So, for example, you know, we, we allow our, our business units to determine which projects they would like to support, as long as it fits within the broad guidelines that, we, that we've laid down. And so, yeah, that's largely how, as for PPEs, I mean, PPEs this year during COVID really kind of showed the agility and flexibility that our program has, which is also important because you don't want to be so static that you that you are unable to respond to a an urgent need and what we found was that that we that our agility allowed us to very quickly respond and respond outside of what we would do from a financial point of view so for example with ppes we were able our i think it was our eastern cape office they produced a whole host of masks similarly we fund from the Discovery Fund, which is our, one of our CSI platforms, we fund over 40 NGOs in a multi-year relationship. And they are all health clinics and health facilities around the country. But we realized that a lot of the support was going to them for delivering services. But what about the staff in those in those offices? And so from our own budgets, not the CSI budgets, from our operational budgets, we actually um, were able to provide masks, for example, to the staff working in these facilities. By the same token, you know, it, it dawned on us that our healthy company provides counseling services to employee members. And so we said, you know, but what about all these NGOs working in, in rural areas where they don't have access to these resources? And we were then able to use, get our employees who work in, in the healthy company who are counselors to provide counseling sessions for staff, which was really, really appreciated by these NGOs. I mean, you may know that NGOs really, you know, they have just enough money to deliver on the services. And so being able to provide these additional bits of support uh, meant a lot to them. It also to them, I think, um, and, and judging from the responses we got, they felt that we were being quite proactive as a funder and they were really appreciative of that. Ruth, tell us about the influences in your work. What drove you to focus on social impact work and how did you turn this into a career? 
So a large part of my working life since the early 80s, late 70s, I suppose, large, I spent working in communities. I come from a family where my parents were both teachers, my late parents, but were very, very active community members. You know, my father started a civic association um, and worked very actively to ensure that libraries were built in areas where, you know, none existed. A swimming pool was built. Um, and I don't know if you, if you know any of that generation of people, but they were not just teachers in communities. They were also the people who wrote the letters for people who couldn't write, you know, the shopkeeper who wasn't allowed to operate because he was Indian in a colored area and so representing those individuals or working for the South African my father was one of the founding members of the League of Friends of the Blind and so I you know as a child I remember having to stand with these boxes collection boxes that filled our lounge <laughs> and was all over and we all had to stand on the road and collect on a particular day for the blind amongst other and so that was very much the the kind of home that I grew up in so getting involved in community work which is what I did eventually in my life my working life was almost something that came naturally and that I did Full-time, eventually, from about 1983, I was employed full-time doing working amongst youth, women, children, on all kinds of issues until our democracy in 94, when I formally then worked in government. And from there, I was recruited into Discovery in 2004. I worked for a while with the, I mean, a couple of places. So I started out in 1994 when Ibrahim Rasul was the MEC for Health and Social Services in the Western Cape. I was his head of head of um, head of his office, so that was my first bit of work. And then I was the regional manager for the Western and Northern Cape for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission between 1996 and 1998. When I moved up to Pretoria, my husband was a civil servant. And then thereafter, I joined the IEC and I worked a bit in ICASA, the regulator for telecoms and broadcasting regulator. And from there, I was recruited to Discovery. Ruth, what does your role as world president entail? What are you going to be doing now? And will you still have time for your work at Discovery? So, yeah, I suppose because it's a global organization headquartered in uh, Washington, D.C., a large part of my work starts at from about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so I chair the board of 13 members for Ayave. It's a four-year term currently. And I, you know, one of the key things is to is how do we speed up our work and become a lot more strategic in terms of the tw the UN's 2030 uh, sustainable development goals and so yeah that's kind of you know we we're going to be doing a strategic review soon and so that's the role that I would play 
in guiding and uh, alongside my fellow board members in guiding the processes of being a lot more strategic and meeting the needs of our global world. The board has a very good representation of all the regions of the world. So it's easy to, you know, be able to tap into everyone else's knowledge. It isn't as if I'm sitting with all the knowledge. I possibly can't have that. So it's a, it's a very privileged position to be in working alongside other colleagues who done this work also for many years. What's your vision for Discovery's corporate sustainability initiatives? Well, I think we'd really like to grow our staff engagement, you know, much more than what it is currently. And I think secondly, we would really like to team up with our global partners, Vitality in the UK, in China, with Ping On Health, and really have a movement across all our businesses that works towards a common goal. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's a big, that will be a big gain for us if we are able to expand our involvement beyond South Africa. You've been listening to Ruth Lewin, who is Discovery's Head of Corporate Sustainability. Coming up, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg, which scores economies that have coped the best in the COVID-19 pandemic. We hear about healthcare systems that have succeeded or failed in managing the pandemic in the COVID resilience ranking, with points to ponder on why South Africa ranks 35 on the list of 35 countries. Everyone is fighting the same coronavirus. But nearly a year into the pandemic, quality of life and control of the pathogen's spread look vastly different across the world. Bloomberg's new COVID resilience ranking scores the largest 53 economies on their success at containing the virus with the least amount of social or economic disruption. I spoke to Bloomberg's Rachel Chang who worked on the Resilience Ranking Project, about the data and the analysis that went into determining the best places for weathering the pandemic. The findings on the relative strength of healthcare systems around the globe and how they've succeeded or failed to manage the pandemic may surprise you. I was wondering if you might start off just explaining what this new COVID resilience ranking does and, and who it's for. So our idea is to be able to give an accurate view based on data of what's going on in the world right now. Because what we've seen of COVID-19, it's, it's pretty much the biggest public health crisis of a generation. And not only that, Everything that we thought we knew about the world and how different countries would handle a, pand a pandemic of this scale has actually been proven wrong. There were many pandemic preparedness and healthcare adequacy type of rankings before the COVID-19 pandemic. And you had countries like the US and the UK top all of those rankings, which clearly have turned out <laughs> to be wrong. At the same time, this year, we've seen a lot of quite surprising success stories. We've seen Developing countries really come out with unique strategies. Some of them have eliminated the entire virus from their local communities. And so the starting point was really that COVID-19 is going to transform, has transformed the world. And Rachel, you know, this this tool has a wealth of data. Um, but of course, we've seen a lot of questions, a lot of interrogation about whether or not 
COVID-19 data can be trusted. And I was wondering if you might go into that as it relates to the resilience ranking. Right. I mean, the starting point really was that we needed to have uh, daily figures for cases and deaths. And a lot of places have uh, collated that the ones where the, the database we're relying on is by the Johns Hopkins University. Of course, we know that cases and fatalities are underreported across the board. That's just um, a reality for every country. It's not something that is limited just to developing countries with uh, porous data. It's something that we've seen repeatedly in advanced uh, economies as well. A big fact is just that testing was extremely inadequate in many major countries. And so there were a lot of people, and I'm sure you know some, who have felt that they probably were sick with COVID, but were never able to get a test to confirm that. In terms of fatalities, a lot of people as well have died at home before being diagnosed. There are certain countries like Russia where if somebody has a comorbidity, has another disease, and then dies after contracting COVID-19, sometimes they mark that down as uh, a fatality not due to COVID-19. So from what we know from experts, all of that data is underreported, underdetected across the board. One of the things we're looking at um, in the future, although it's not available yet, is something called excess mortality that countries record for the whole year. So we can see in countries with pretty good overall death data by comparing what their 2020 number is to, say, 2019 or the average between 2015 and 2019, you can see that access that will be due to COVID-19. And sometimes that is way more than what the official COVID-19 fatality is. But having said all that, I think we have to go into this project with an understanding that the data is inadequate, that it probably won't be adequate for a long, uh, long period of time. But at the same time, it's still a valuable way for us to have a picture of what's going on right now. And I was wondering if maybe we could break down some of the, the data um, that you do mention and include in the resilience ranking. And one is, of course, and this is a, a term we've heard used a lot, is the positive test rate. Why is this particular factor important when considering and, and why did you choose to include it in the resilience ranking? So the positive test rate is something that experts do look at um, to look at the situation in a country and how much undetected infection is in the community. So a very high positive test rate basically means that doctors are only testing the sickest people, people who have become so sick that they have to go to hospital. Um, very often, they are quite close to a, a very terrible deterioration in their disease. Um, and what that means is that there is just so many cases out there in your community that haven't been detected. These are people probably moving around and infecting other people. So it's a way to tell uh, how contained or how in control the doctors and the officials are of a situation on the ground. So what we see, for example, is that when the infection, the positive test rate falls below 5% for 14 days, that is when the WHO says that governments should think about relaxing uh, relaxing the lockdown restrictions. Prior to that, uh, there's a dangerous amount of infection in the community. Now, speaking of lockdowns, actually, that is another indicator you have on the ranking, the lockdown strictness indicator. And I was wondering if you might go into what that is and, and maybe continuing on from your previous discussion, why is this so important for us to understand almost from a global level? 
Yeah, this is a very interesting indicator because I think it's something that's really evolved over the course of the crisis. So it's an indicator that's produced by Oxford University. They have a team of researchers who are just monitoring the number and the strictness of lockdown policies that every government in the world is imposing. So at the initial phase of the crisis, what we did see is that uh, countries that impose very strict measures very early on, so what we call that swift and uh, strong and early action, uh, were very successful at containing the virus. So the economies that are ranked in our top 10, for example, New Zealand, uh, Taiwan as well, these were places that did have a really stringent reaction early on. But what we've actually seen as the pandemic has gone on is that if a government currently has the need to impose, again, strict policies of lockdown, that points to actually a failure of containing the coronavirus. It points to a failure of maintaining the gains from previous lockdowns. And so in, the, in, in our ranking, we've taken stringency as a negative thing. So the more stringent your current situation is, the lower your score in this indicator. Because I think what we've seen almost a year into the pandemic is that that sort of disruption that lockdowns bring has been extremely economically costly, has been socially very costly to a lot of people. There's been a, a, a huge mental health toll from isolation and disruption. And we, we see it as a negative to people's lives. And that's what we wanted to reflect. Now, that indicator does seem to have a lot to do with with something else on the ranking, which is community mobility. But I was wondering if you might go into how how that differs, how the ranking for community mobility is slightly different from the lockdown indicator. Yeah. So the lockdown, the stringency indicator from Oxford University um, is the number and uh, strictness of government policies. And so, you know, it captures the letter of what governments are trying to do. But it does not capture whether or not there is enforcement and compliance uh, on the ground. And what we're seeing is that, you know, there are a lot of places where governments are imposing all of these intense rules, but there's no enforcement. People are not following it. Um, and then there are also places where governments don't have to really impose any kind of rules, but because of a high level of social compliance, a high level of population ownership of the problem, people uh, kind of decide for themselves that they don't want to be as mobile as before and they stay home more when they hear that there are more cases. So that's two sides of the same coin of disruption. And so at this point, we look at mobility as the higher mobility is to the pre-pandemic baseline, the better situation an economy is in right now. One indicator that you do include on this ranking is is going to be more and more relevant as we go forward in time. And certainly with the news from, say, Pfizer and BioNTech, something that we're all very optimistic about. And that is, of course, the vaccine access indicator. I was wondering if you might maybe unpack a little bit about what people can understand from from this data point. Yeah, this is a really exciting indicator and one that we put a lot of effort into piecing together, going off on um, a database that was originally put together by some Duke researchers. But, you know, this is such a shifting thing. Uh, countries are uh, announcing new agreements every day. Vaccines themselves are making so much progress every day. So it's something we've really had to keep on top of. But we think it's a really valuable way of 
you know, not just revealing something that's that, as you said, is is the most important thing that everybody is thinking about right now, but it's also a way to take that ranking and kind of pivot it towards the future because. The biggest beneficiary of this indicator being included are countries where, and the U.S. is the number one example of this, have really lost control of the epidemic. And uh, the U.S., well, the administration of the outgoing president, Donald Trump, has said openly that they don't want to contain the coronavirus. They want to use treatments and vaccines to solve the crisis. And we've seen them, we've seen the U.S. pour almost $20 billion into funding some of this research. And indeed, it's now in a situation where it has five separate vaccine agreements with five different phase three candidates. And as we know, vaccines like the Pfizer one has proven extraordinarily effective. And we know that that approval is going to come just in a couple of weeks. So it could very much be a game changer for countries who otherwise have lost control of their situations. I was wondering if you might just go through some of the other variables that are measured in the resilience ranking and and perhaps just very briefly, the rationale in including some of these variables. So some of the uh, other things that we've included are pre-pandemic measures like, for example, the universal healthcare coverage indicator, which looks at 23 different aspects of an economy's um, healthcare system ranging from very basic stuff like basic childhood vaccines to something like cancer care. And what that indicator was shown, although it was um, the database was put together before COVID-19, was that it was really gave an idea of the strength of a country's healthcare system, which we think makes a big difference in how patients are helped. The other thing that that does reflect is the ability of a place to continue providing non-COVID-19 healthcare, even through the pandemic. And we've seen that that's quite an important facet for maintaining a normal life for a lot of people. Um, another thing as well, we've included the United Nations Human Development Index, which uh, is quite widely known and widely used as a measure of a country's uh, well-being. Uh, it's made up of three components. One of that is life expectancy. The second one is wealth per capita. And the third one is expected years of schooling, which we think can act as a proxy for population's trust in science which has really emerged as something that makes a difference in terms of whether people are following uh, public health guidance, like mask wearing, hand washing, these kinds of small things can really make a big difference. How are you hoping a user of this tool can can apply this information and what can they, they take away from this resilience ranking? I think I think the main thing that people can take away, first of all, is that the coronavirus is not something that cannot be controlled. The economies that have placed really high on the ranking, a lot of the people in these places are living lives, pretty much the pre-pandemic life, you know, before COVID-19 was even a thing. Decisive and united action has really helped some of these places control the coronavirus. I mean, Taiwan has gone 200 days without a local case. Uh, You know, there's live music, social events, mass social events in New Zealand. What the ranking really provides is Um, an idea of where to look for some of these strategies, right? Some of these countries have pioneered some of the best strategies to fight something like this. Secondly, I think what the virus really helps to do is to put things in perspective for people, because I think it's pretty much a once in a lifetime thing where there is a single event that has affected people around the world in the same magnitude. And I think it's very important to have a perspective on 
you know, a situation, for example, like in Japan, which now is entering a winter wave. And the capital of Tokyo just raised its alert to the highest level last week. But Japan is in a situation where there are 38 people in serious condition from COVID-19 right now, which is an extraordinarily low amount by the standards of other places. And finally, I think it is a ranking that aims to kind of dispel some of the myths that people have to kind of change people's minds and show them that, you know, the world is not, does not um, exist according to some of these old ideas that we had that kind of ruled the world for so many years, right? Like the best healthcare systems are not necessarily where we think they are. The strongest science-led leadership are not necessarily in the places that we think they are. And I think one of the things that emerged that has emerged is that Asia as a region has been extremely effective at controlling the coronavirus because of very strong public health systems, because of contact traces on the ground, because of publicly funded nurses, because of free health coverage. And these are all things that we want to show people are very important in the coronavirus era. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.